Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the North Point Community Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free North Point app where you can access all of our recent message content. And actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at North Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. So there's this uh, law, this law of life, if you will, that uh, you would not be able to identify by name. Uh, If you just saw the name of the law, you'd have no idea what it was. But it is a law that we've all experienced. It's a law of life um, that you experience on a regular basis, um, frustratingly so. And the law that I'm talking about is uh, Parkinson's law. And Parkinson's law states this, that work work or, or any kind of task that you have will expand to the allotted time given for its completion. So um, if you've got something on your to-do list, something you got to do at home, something you got to do at work, that um, the work, that task itself will expand to the allotted time that you've been given or that you give it for its completion. So the way that this plays out is if you have five minutes to complete a task that should take you five minutes, well, you'll typically get it done in five minutes, but here's where Parkinson's law comes into play. If you take that same task that should take you five minutes, but you've been given an hour to do it, something magic happens. It takes you an hour to do it. And, and there's a, f- a few different factors at play. One, the, the more time you have or the more time you've been given, the more complicated a job can become. Or what's probably true for most of us is that the more time you have, right, the more likely you are to procrastinate. And so the length of time, the length of waiting, and before you know it, that, that job or that task fills the entire time you've been given. We've all experienced this, even frustratingly so, okay? This is why, um, and I'm not trying to get spouses to be mad at each other here, but this is why that house project that you asked him to do on Saturday and it was supposed to take him one hour, took the whole day, right? He went to Home Depot, forgot he wasn't a carpenter and, you know, just got started to get ideas and, you know, get, get slowing things down, just perusing, browsing, taking the time. And next thing you know, something that should have taken an hour took the whole day. That's Parkinson's law and play. Or come on, something that we all know, maybe you're a college student or a graduate student, or if you've ever been in school, you know this. It's why when you had three weeks to write that paper, right? You're finishing it three hours before it was due. Or in nowadays when you're submitting them online, you're submitting it three minutes to midnight. Do you know what I mean? Like this is Parkinson's law. It's something we've all experienced that work or a task magically will just expand to fill the time and space that it is given. In a very similar way, the same is true of God and your spiritual life. God, God will fill whatever space we make for him in our lives. And this idea is what I want to wrestle with over the next couple of weeks in our new series, Make Room, the spiritual life for ordinary people, that I want to wrestle with what it looks like and why it should matter, that we need to make room to experience more of God's transforming power and grace in our 
lives. And, and I don't wanna belabor the point because after all, it is a subtitle, but I very intentionally picked this subtitle and I wanna just give you a little bit of explanation of why, the spiritual life for ordinary people. And it's because, and, and maybe you'd fall into this bucket, I, I know certainly that I do, right? The, the idea of experiencing more of God in your life and experiencing more of God's grace and more of his power in your life, so often that's kind of like reserved for the spiritual people. The thought is, if you're a Jesus follower, I hope to get there one day, you know, just like grandma who seems to have a direct line to God. Do you know what I mean? Like, like that's the goal, like be like grandma one day. Um, the idea of a thriving spiritual life, experiencing more of God in your life is something that can feel elusive, so ethereal for others, too abstract to actually do anything with it. And then maybe if you are a follower of Jesus in the room and you've been following for quite some time, the idea of experiencing more of God in your life can actually be a frustrating endeavor because maybe you've experienced this. I know I have. The longer you follow, the more stagnant faith and and, and, and your spiritual life feels like it becomes and you're like, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. Well, no matter who you are or where you would plot yourself on the broad spectrum of faith and spirituality. I mean, you might've been following Jesus for years or you're still on the front end. Maybe you would call yourself convinced and committed of who Jesus is or you're just curious and peering in. Uh, you, You might have a bunch of Bible verses memorized or you're not even sure if you own one, okay? The potential, the potential to experience more of God's rule and grace and power and peace and love personally in your life is available to everyone. And something that I wanna encourage you with, I find this idea so encouraging, that God, God wants to meet ordinary people like you and I in the ordinary moments of life. In fact, a thriving spiritual life is not one where we have these like high emotional mountaintop moments at church. The spiritual life is not one of these things where it's like you're sitting in your living room in the morning, you're reading your Bible, and then you hear the audible voice of God, okay? If that's ever happened, we need to have a different conversation. <clears throat> um, I've never heard it. But these, the, the spiritual life, a thriving spiritual life. It's not these high mountaintop moments. Rather, it is quite simply, and I would say quite beautifully, walking with God and inviting God into the ordinary, seemingly mundane moments of parenting, of working, of schooling, of budgeting, of inviting God into the everyday moments of your life. That God is interested in your life. So, if God will fill whatever space we make for him in our lives, then we'll pivot to the question of the series. How do we make room? How does anybody make room? So glad that you asked. So the way that you make room, the way that I make room, the way that anybody can make room to experience more of God's grace and power in our lives is through these age-old things that the church has practiced for a long time called spiritual disciplines, spiritual disciplines. Now, for some of you that have followed Jesus for quite some time, you're already feeling guilty. Hold all that for just a moment, okay? And you're like, I don't even know what a spiritual discipline is. Let's start with just disciplines, okay? Let's just knock off the spiritual part for just a second, okay? We're at church after all. Let's just talk about disciplines for just a second, okay? Um, The key, you know this, the key to growing in any area of your life, the key to being able to do something that you cannot currently do is to put into practice the right disciplines 
disciplines that make room, that set the right conditions for you to progress and eventually be able to do the thing that you can't do or are not currently doing. Here's a a pretty just kind of run-of-the-mill definition of a discipline. A discipline, a discipline is any activity, any activity that you can do, any activity that I can do that will enable me to eventually do what I cannot currently do do, right? Any activity, any discipline, any activity that I can do by my own willpower that will eventually give me the ability to do what I could not do, that will eventually give me the power to do what I could not do before. Let's take a really simple example. Running a marathon, okay? Running a marathon. You don't wake up and just decide tomorrow after having never done any kind of running that I'm going to run a marathon. If you did that tomorrow, we might not see you the next day, right? Like, what do you do if you decide to run a marathon? You put into practice the discipline of running. I've never done this, but I've, I've heard if you train for a marathon, you get on a plane, right? You run three miles and five miles and seven miles and nine miles and 13, then back to 11, then 14. And eventually through the training program and the discipline of running, you have now gained the ability. You've now gained the power to run a marathon and you've got the bumper sticker to prove it, right? Disciplines, disciplines enable you to progress. They facilitate growth. And even in some cases, and you've experienced this, especially in some cases with your health and even in certain relationships, certain disciplines, the right disciplines can be life-changing and even life-saving. What they do, what they do, they make room for you to access a power that you did not have before, to do what you could not do before. And the same is true. The same is true with spiritual disciplines. And, and maybe even more helpful, change the language. There's spiritual habits, habits that you should put into practice. Or maybe um, what a, a lot of authors and pastors that have been impactful to me that talk about these call them spiritual practices. Spiritual practices, age-old practices that church has been practicing for centuries that make room that make room for us to experience more of God in our everyday lives. Things like the personal study of the scriptures, silence and solitude, prayer, sacrifice, fasting, Sabbath or rest, okay? But before we get into the details of the disciplines and and before we get into all of that, okay? Don't don't worry, we're not going there just yet. I don't wanna get ahead. We've gotta lay a groundwork. We've got to lay um, a, a groundwork for specifically what the spiritual disciplines are not, what they are not. Before we get into what they are and how to practice them, we need to get a few things right about what the spiritual disciplines are not. And I hope for just the next couple of minutes to take the pressure off some of you. Some of you Christians are already feeling guilty, okay? So just, just hang with me for one second. Here's what the spiritual disciplines are not. They are not a barometer of spirituality, They are not a measure, a barometer of your spirituality. It is so easy. It's so easy to grow burdened by the idea of reading my Bible and praying and sacrificing and giving and all of of those things. If we think that God is grading us on our performance based on how well or how often we do them. Come on, we've all had moments where we felt guilty. It's been so long since I've prayed. It's been so long since I've opened up my Bible. What is the root of that guilt? That God is looking down at you and thinking, do better, be better, you should know better. But when these disciplines, when these disciplines, these habits, these practices, when they become a way to impress God, we've completely missed 
the point. And in some cases, in some cases, these disciplines um, in a very toxic way, and I've been there, they can become a way to impress others. Whenever disciplines become a way to impress God or to impress other people, to show the barometer of spirituality that we have, we have completely missed the point. They're not a way to impress God. God is looking to be impressed by you. They're a way to walk with God because he wants to walk with you. And as we'll see in a minute, you can practice all these disciplines perfectly and completely miss the point. Number two, um, they are not a way to earn favor with God. This one, this is so, this is so, so important, so, so helpful. Take some of the pressure off. Um, they're not a way to get extra credit with God. They're not a way to earn more grace. They're not a way to earn more favor. They're not a way to earn forgiveness. They're not a way to earn goodwill. They're not a way to, he- to earn a hedge of protection around your life. Come on, we've all been there. Have you ever been in a situation where something didn't go your way and you had a thought, wouldn't have happened if I'd been reading my Bible more? What wouldn't have happened if I, I just, just volunteered at church more? This, this wouldn't have happened. Come on. To do that is just bad theology. That God's love for you has never been based on your performance and it never will be. In fact, the disciplines, they're not for him. They're for you and they're for me. They're not a way to earn his grace. In fact, as my wife, Julie, so just, powerfully said as I was processing this series with her. She said this, and I quote, that disciplines are not a way to earn God's grace. Disciplines are in a way to put you in the path of God's grace. It's right there. Sidebar, if you're married, quote your spouse in a presentation, okay? <laughs> but she's so right. It's not a way to earn anything. That God's grace is already there. God's grace is already available. That these disciplines, they put you in the path of God's grace that's already freely given. And third, um, they're they're not necessarily unpleasant. Okay, Just because it's a discipline doesn't mean you would choose not to do it if you had the choice. In fact, I'm just telling you, if you stuck with me throughout the series, I think here's what you'll find. In this fast pace always going, always earning, overstimulated, comparison as a hobby, worth in the zeros, the titles and the things, world full of distractions that we live in. Anything that might lead you to become a person that experiences more joy, peace, and love, I'm just telling you, you might find these things to be downright enjoyable. In fact, I'd argue that maybe in a time unlike any other time in history, we are probably more hungry and thirsty for these disciplines than ever before and maybe even more than you realize. And lastly, and where I wanna spend most of our time this morning is they are not the end. They are a means to an end. That these disciplines, whatever it is, prayer, Bible, right, whatever you want to talk about, they are not the end goal. This is so important for us to get. The goal, the end, is not the discipline itself. The nature of a discipline, right? It's to enable you to do what you can't currently do. Training is never the end. It's always a means to an end. In fact, for all all the Christians in the room, all the followers of Jesus, whenever these spiritual disciplines become the end goal in and of themselves, you know what begins to happen? We will miss the very heart of God. 
When these disciplines become the end goal, okay, I've just got to do them, I've got to knock them out, and I'm going to be better at them than anybody else. You know what will start to happen? You start to get bored with your faith. When these disciplines become the end, then your walk with Jesus just becomes a to-do list of religious activities. When these disciplines become the end, I'm just telling you, here's what starts to happen, and I've been there, I'm not pointing the finger, I get this, that we can so easily become self-righteous and look down at those that don't practice like we do. They don't have to be the end in order to be beneficial and good. They're beneficial and good, but they are not the end. And so before we dig into what they are and how to do them, we need to lay the foundation of the end that they are a means to. And what is that end? Well, Jesus made that abundantly clear. In fact, we're going to look at one of his most famous moments, one of his most famous moments in all of the gospels. It is so famous that all of you have heard it. Even if you're not a person of faith, you have heard it. It's so famous that it is so easy to gloss over it. In fact, it's so funny. It is so clear and so not complicated. We as followers of Jesus are tempted to add to it. That, 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 that it is so simple and it is so not complicated. It almost feels like it's not enough. It feels elementary. It feels like the beginner stuff and I need to get to the theological red meat of following Jesus. So don't I roll this away on account of familiarity because what Jesus is about to do here in this moment is show us the very heart of the spiritual endeavor and he's about to show us the end that all of these spiritual habits and practices ultimately are a means to. So Matthew chapter 22, Jesus finds himself in a debate um, with the Sadducees who were like the Pharisees, two, two religious groups of religious leaders in the day. They had a little bit of different theology, but if there's one thing they lined up on, it was they did not like Jesus. And so um, Jesus is in an argument with the Sadducees, not an argument, in a debate, a healthy debate, rabbis debated, teachers debated, um, and he's crushing the Sadducees. In Matthew chapter two, or 22, verse 34, um, Matthew tells us, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees in the previous arguments. In other words, that word literally means he muzzled them. Like they just had no idea what to do. They were down and out. So hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they got together. Like, all right, we gotta go, we, we gotta go help our friends, okay? And so they got together, family feud style, okay? You know what I'm talking about. And they're strategizing. Okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to get them? So, well, what do they do? One of them, one of them, an expert in the law, they're like, hey, Jim, you're up, pal. This is your chance. This is your moment. This is what you've trained for. This is what you've studied for. So one of them, an expert in the law, an expert in the law literally just means a lawyer. He was a lawyer, super studied, and, and he tests Jesus with a question. He wants to try to entrap Jesus with a question. And the question is this, teacher, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, again, you already know you're fast forwarding, but just, just stick here with just a second. We gloss over it, but we gotta, we gotta understand. Pretend like you're hearing this for the first time, if it's possible. This was such a massive question. You've got 613 commands in the law and a bunch of oral tradition around the law and different laws that they made up that kind of built fences around those laws. I mean, to ask Jesus to sum this up was, was almost impossible. In fact, the question was meant to cause debate. 
The question was meant to be seemingly impossible. The question was meant to to create some disagreement because even this would have been a question that they would have debated about anyway. And so here, I mean, this was a huge question and everybody watching, everybody listening would have been leaning in like, oh, that's a good one, Jim. What's he going to, what could he possibly say that would appease everybody? I mean, come on, what could he, how do you answer that? How do you pick just one? So Jesus, verse 37, everyone is just waiting for this answer. He responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Love God wholeheartedly, that's what he says. That's the command, that's the way of Jesus. To love God with all that you are and with all that you have. To love God with your stuff, to love God with your energy, to love God with your money, to trust God with your surrender, to pursue his way rather than your way. And I wish I could have been in this moment because we don't know this for sure, but I bet you Jesus had a little bit of a pause because they, they asked him, what is the first and greatest commandment? They were expecting one. They were expecting one. And so Jesus um, gives them one, but just like Jesus so often does, he does the unexpected. And I bet you he paused there as they were gearing up to, 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 to say something, but then he doesn't give them just one. He gives them two. And he says, ah, Jim, sit down. Not done yet, Jim. Peter, keep the plasma out. I'm not done yet. He says, and the second, and they'd be like, whoa, the second. He says, the second is like it. The second is connected to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Wholehearted love for God means seeing other people as God sees them. All people are objects of God's love. So the logical conclusion that Jesus is arguing, according to him, is that to love God with all that you are and all that you have, you must and you will love all people. No conditions, no exclusions, no restrictions, no exceptions. Whoever doesn't love their fellow human being fails to love God wholeheartedly. He takes these two and he links them together, bonds them together for good. And then as if if that wasn't shocking enough, Jesus, he kind of takes it a step further. Again, this is so so normal to us, but the language here is so important. The, the, The question from the lawyer was, hey, what's the first and greatest commandment of the law? Jesus goes on to say, all the law and the prophets Hang on these two commandments. In other words, you asked about the law. I'm going to lump in everything you've ever heard from God. Every law and all that you've ever heard from the prophets that, you, that, that your ancestor heard from. Isaiah and Jeremiah. All of them. All the law and all the prophets. Anything you've ever heard from God. I'm lumping this all into one. And all of that, he says, hangs on, depends on these two commandments. Without them, nothing else can stand. Without these two, the rest of it is meaning is meaningless and of no value. That without growing in these two commands, as the apostle Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 13, you've gained nothing by doing everything else. Fulfilling anything that God has commanded finds its root here. 
following and walking in the way of Jesus finds its roots here. And I love here, Matthew, this is his account of this moment. This is where his ends. Mark must have been a lot snarkier than Matthew because at the end of his account of this moment, he adds this line. um, And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Mark was like, hang on, I'm gonna put this in here because he got him. The reason is obvious. He'd answered the question about the ultimate end of the spiritual life to the most spiritual people, quote unquote, of the day in a way that none of them and no one before had ever heard and they were left speechless, jaws on the floor. And no one dared ask him another one. More important than your sacrifices, more important than your burnt offerings, more important than your prayers in the public square. Love God, love people. And the irony was he was saying this to a group of people that put spiritual activity and practiced spiritual activity at the expense of this very command. Love God, love people. Without them, you've gained nothing. And here's a, here's a little hint. Here's a little, I don't know, bring you in. Um, you don't ever graduate from these two commands. You, you don't ever get there. You don't ever make it there. You don't, this is it. Like this is the end and the goal. Not some kind of discipline. I love what John Ortberg, who's a super influential pastor and, and author that, that has influenced my life greatly. This is what he wrote about this. He said, the true indicator of your spiritual well-being is growth in the ability, the power to love God and love people. And if we can do this, I love this. This is so real. If we can do this without the practice of any particular spiritual disciplines, then by all means, we should by all means skip them. They're not the goal. They're not the end. And if they're not helping you become a more of a person of love, to love God and love people, then by all means, just skip them. But here's what John knows. Here's what you know, and I'll speak for myself. Here's what I know, Okay. Get real vulnerable and honest. You have to promise to not leave our church, okay? I'm not naturally good at loving people. I'm not naturally good at showing compassion. I'm not naturally good at being kind or patient. I know, it's shocking. I know, it's crazy. Come on. I'm not naturally good at being selfless. I'm not naturally good at surrendering and trusting when I don't have control. I'm not good at living with peace, joy. You know what I am naturally good at? I'm naturally good at being selfish, prideful. More than I'd like to admit, I'm naturally good at being controlling I'm more naturally good at worrying and stressing when I'm not in control. In other words, I'm really naturally good at being myself. Anybody else? 
I'm naturally good at being myself. I'm not naturally good at loving God and loving people. In other words, I'm naturally good at being myself and I am not naturally good at being like Jesus. Our teacher, our example, our Lord, a living, breathing representation and perfect demonstration of what it means to love God and to love people. And this is not elementary and this is not rudimentary. This is not 101 stuff. This is the goal. He is the goal. Full stop. So we've come then full circle. The spiritual disciplines, like any discipline, enabling you to do what you cannot do on your own. And in this case, loving God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and loving people. In other words, living like Jesus. That the spiritual disciplines are a means to what end? The ultimate end of thinking like and feeling like and behaving like and loving just like Jesus. And so then the spiritual disciplines, right? And you don't need to raise your hand, but come on, you know this. We don't have that power on our own. So the spiritual disciplines then, exercised by our own willpower, give us access to an outside of this world power to help that make possible, which is the Holy Spirit that lives inside of so then what are the spiritual disciplines? Like what, 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 how do they function? What do they do? I, I came up with two definitions. I didn't know which one to use. So we're gonna do both, okay? Maybe you'll like one over the other. I don't care. They kind of build on each other, okay? So spiritual disciplines, what, what do they do? Spiritual disciplines, first one. Spiritual disciplines make room. They, they make room for us to experience more of God's transforming power in our lives. That you're just not going to naturally look like Jesus because you feel like it. You've tried that, I've tried that, and you know the ugly natural parts of you just like I know the ugly natural sinful parts of me. And what these spiritual disciplines do, I'm telling you, they make room, they make room for us to experience more of God's transforming power and grace in our lives. And kind of built out of that, a different way to say it is this, that spiritual disciplines, they make room to help us gain power to live life and love others as Jesus modeled They make room, they make room to help us gain a power that we do not have on our own to eventually enable us to live life and love others as Jesus modeled and taught. And on the other side of this pursuit, I'm just telling you, on the other side of this pursuit is more joy, more peace, and more love. And it is the life that Jesus has invited us into and it is the life that he said he came to offer us in John 10 verse 10 where Jesus said this he said I've come I've come down I've taken on human flesh that they those who are figuring out the best way to follow me those who are trying their best to follow me I've come that they may have life and have it to the full this is the life that you ultimately a fulfilling life a full life marked by peace marked by joy, marked by love, and all those three together infiltrating every area of your life. 
infiltrating every relationship in your life, preceding every thought, anchoring your soul in any circumstance of the hope of Jesus and living and walking with more purpose than you could have ever imagined. He said, that's the fullness I've come to offer you. Here's the problem. Some of us aren't experiencing that fullness because we aren't making enough room. It's not because God is absent. It's not because there's anything wrong with your faith. It's because we just simply haven't made enough room. I'm just telling you, you will experience as much of God as you are willing to make room for that you have been on his radar far before he was ever on yours. He is there, he is ready, and he is willing, and he is waiting. And I'm just telling you, you will experience as much of him as we are willing to make room for. And what we're going to find is these disciplines, these spiritual habits and practices, they're so life-giving. Not always going to be easy, but they're so life-giving. Here's what they're going to cause you to do. They're going to force you to slow They're going to force you to slow down, to stop running the rat race of humanity. To slow down long enough to hear God speak to your heart, to remind it of what is true no matter what is right in front of you. That these spiritual habits, these spiritual practices and disciplines, they're going to, they're going to lead you to sacrifice for others. Finding purpose and giving your life away is unlike anything else that we will ever do. You're going to find more life there and more joy there. That these disciplines, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to lead to stretching you out of your comfort zone into bigger and better faith. You're going to take steps you never thought you could take, do things you never would have thought to do before you made space to experience where God was leading you. And then they're going to, they're going to prompt you to surrender, to trust. And in that trust and in that surrender, with all that we can't control, is a space where our heart can experience true joy and true peace. In the process of all of that, you're going to experience more of that fullness, being transformed to live a life marked by joy, peace, love, ultimately becoming a person that thinks and feels and sees and hopes and trusts and loves more like Jesus. That is fullness. That is real life. And that's the life, come on, that you ultimately really want. That's the life that this world needs that's the life that your kids need. That's the life that your spouse needs. That is the life that this community needs. That is the life that will be a life used by God. That is a life that will make us shine in the darkness. It's available. And that is a life worth making room for. I'm just telling you, God will expand to fill whatever space that you make for him. I'm telling you, the more space you make, I'm telling you, he'll fill it. He will meet you 
For some of you, he will meet you in a way that you've never known possible. He'll transform you. Our job is to make room, to get into the path of his grace. Disciplines exist ultimately because we need God. So our job is to make the room. If we do our part, I'm just telling you, he is faithful to meet you and fill the space and do his. So what are some of the disciplines specifically and how do we begin to begin to practice them to make room? Well, that is where we'll pick up next week as we conclude our series. Make room, the spiritual life for ordinary people. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thanks that you see us. How encouraging of a thought that you are interested in the ordinary, mundane moments of our life. How beautiful is it that the spiritual endeavor is inviting you into those moments, walking with you, moment by moment connection. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we journey through these conversations and through the series, I pray, Lord, that you would give us the eyes to see where we could make more room and give us the courage to do something with what we learn. Thank you for the model that is Jesus. Thank you that you're not looking for us to earn anything with you, but you just want to transform us to live and look more like him because not only is that better for us, but for the world around us. So may you do a work in our hearts. Would you start something over the next couple of weeks? Would you stir something up in us? And we may, may we begin to experience more of your rule, grace, and power in our lives than we have ever experienced before. Give us the courage to make room. We trust you to fill it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.